All right. Um, yeah, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I can't imagine a better text that will be befitting of the worship that we've already engaged in this morning coming from this text. Is, this is the heart of it. This is what drives us to everything we do here. This is, this is the hope we have, church. So let's hear the word of the Lord together. Therefore, brothers, Hebrews 10 says, verse 19, Brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from, all, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as is the habit of some, but, but encouraging each other. And all the more as we see the day approaching. Amen? Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. So I hope you have a copy of God's Word in front of you. If you do not, we have plenty of copies out in the hallway. It will not bother me at all if you got up and got you a copy of that. And uh, whoever's preemptively got me a couple, uh, bottle of water up here, thank you so much. You're, you're a wonderful saint. So we're in this series at the end of the summer. Uh, and we're going to take this all the way through this month. Or most of the way through this month. And we're exploring the doctrine of the church. A fresh and new, putting some new eyes on it. We're not improving upon it, of course. We're just one to, since we have seen God grow us and mold us and shape us into what we are becoming, wow, just amazing. I'm so thankful for you and what God is doing in this church. We just felt like it was a really good time to sit back and kind of reset our sails a little bit about what is it, what are, what are we, who are we as the church? Why do we do what we do? And so we talked about in that first week, just the church is the redeemed people of God. It's that people God has set his affections on since paternity passed and has guaranteed he's going to call out of death and into his glorious new life in Christ. And we talked about the fact that, that, that the marks of that church are, are the right preaching of the gospel. And of course, the ordinances and the discipline of the church. And then last week, you know, we, we just kind of pressed into, you know, pressed into some other aspects of, this, of the life of the church as far as, as, far as what does it mean for, as far as who our life, life of church looks like. And we're going to really be digging into that this week and then in the next three weeks uh, just really exploring, um, what, you know, this, that that title in your sermon, in your in your in your uh, in your worship guide there. The title that, that it I basically tried to make it help it like, see it. The piety and practice of the church. Why do we do what we do here? Maybe you don't know why we do what we do here. Maybe you don't understand why we do certain aspects of our worship. And, and particularly today, hopefully that'll be helpful for you. But we call this series ordinary for a reason. Because what we're aspiring to do as a church is to be ordinary. Not extraordinary. It's not our job to be extraordinary. Jesus is extraordinary. Right? It's not our job to be extraordinary. And churches who try to improve upon Jesus are trying to improve upon something they cannot improve upon. But we just want to be an ordinary church. We want to really set our eyes on what is those basic things that the church has been called to and has participated in throughout the ages that have just kept its focus and its mission clear. Um, and, and it's ordinary means of grace. It's, you've probably heard me say that, that phrase uh, many times. And I look back at my years in ministry and I looked how foolishly I participated in so many 
aspects of ministry that were seeking the, the new and better, as if we can improve upon something that God has held up himself since his ascension. And as I've kind of walked through these years of my life, and I get longer in the tooth of ministry, I just find this deepening joy for being an ordinary pastor, serving an ordinary church, steeped in the ordinary practices and graces that God has given us. And I just hope that that, as we continue to go forward as that church, kind of church, that you would, you would see how beautiful that actually is. That, that, that we haven't learned something new about the church in the 21st century. And, thank you, and in case you have, then go back and read the Bible and you'll find that you probably have it. Um, when you talk about this idea of ordinary means of grace, let me try to define that for you. It's those means of Christian piety, i.e. practice, uh, pursuit of godliness, if you want to use that word, that were recovered by the reformers. They were recovered by the Puritans because at their time, the, the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church, had ventured into kinds of piety and practices that were more about us participating and assisting God in grace. You know what I mean? Like, in other words, it's part God's work and it's part our work. But that's just not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches it's all God's work. Amen. And we get the great privilege of participating in his grace as we participate in the preaching, the worship of the church, the community of the church, and the, and, and the loving our neighbors and friends that, that, that desperately need to hear about Jesus. We're not improving upon anything. We're, not, we're participating in God's grace, but we're not partnering with God in grace. Does that make sense? And so all these reformers were saying, look, you've created a system that says, if you don't do these things, you're not part of the church, you're not saved. And they said, that's just not true. You can't read the Bible and come away with that conclusion. But actually, the ordinary means of grace were these ideas of like, we're partnering, we're, I mean, sorry, we're not partnering, we're participating in grace that God has just given us. Washing in grace every Sunday as we hear the word of God opened up. And we're singing grace of the song, wonderful songs we've sung this morning. As we confess our, do our confession and we call ourselves into worship and in a few minutes we'll do the Lord's Supper. These are wonderful graces that God has given his church to participate in. Right? Not partner with him in. Participate with him so that we might be the people that would display the profound beauty of God's grace to the world. Amen? That's what we're aspiring to do. And so when I discovered this a few years ago as a pastor, um, especially over the last few years as we've been planting this church, man, this just gave me a whole new wind to my ministry and vision. And it, it's, it's, put my, it's taken my heart and my affections off of things, metrics that, that people say is what makes you a real church, and actually puts my affections on the things that God says, just, just participate with me. Let me just wash you from my grace every week. Like when a church gets recovers that, man, you, you see something profoundly beautiful. And, the, and so the Puritans and the Reformers were so wonderfully, and listen, I can point you in a direction of a lot of great resources if you want to say this further. But they really kind of reduced, recovered the three primary means that we participate in as God's people. First, we participate in the proper worship of God, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. That flows out of that the right kind of Christ-centered edification that comes out of the body, the way we love one another, right? And then that flows outward into this exalting witness of Christ to the world. You can't get it out of order either. you got to start with worship, then the formation of God's people, 
and then the sending of God's people. You can't get that out of order, and that's going to be the order of the next three weeks. Today we're going to be talking about the proper worship of Christ that will then next week talk, well, gives way to the proper edification and care that comes out of the body of Christ. And then we then press into, okay, now we've got, we got a holy agenda into the world to proclaim this great Christ to the world. That's it. That's all the church is supposed to be. And believe me, friends, it's enough. It's all we need. Mark Dever summarizes it this way. He says, The proper ends of a local congregation's life and actions are the worship of God, the edification of the church, and the evangelization of the world. These three purposes in turn serve the glory of God. If you want to be in a church that serves the glory of God, we got to be a church that worships God properly, that seeks to edify and care for one another well, and then goes and tells the greatest story ever told in Jesus. That's it. Anyone who would tell you the church is supposed to be something else or more is lying to you. This is all of it. And so these three purposes, again, as I said a minute ago, will be the kind of way we will land the plane in this series. And today we're going to be talking about worship in the church. So here's my summary for the sermon. Because worship is ingrained in the created order of God. Let me say that again. Because worship, that's my big statement, because worship is ingrained in the created order of God. I mean, all creation, it's all about worship. Because that's true, the church is called to pursue proper worship as our chief end of life. If you get your worship wrong, you get everything else wrong. Okay? That's a shorter way of saying that sentence. You get your worship wrong, you get everything else wrong. You probably have heard one of the most famous catechism questions. If you catechize your kids, it's one of the first two or three that you land on. We say it here from time to time from the, from the stage. What is the chief end of man? If you know it, say it with me. The man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Man's chief end... This is what these people, the reformers and the Puritans who wrote those great early confessions of the Second London Confession, the Westminster Confession and whatnot, they, 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 they walked away going, before we can get too far into our doctrine, before you can get too far into your theology, you've got to get down to the very substance of it. And your end and my end is one aim, worship and enjoy God. That's what this church exists for. This is what we do. It's the beginning of everything that is God's redemptive purposes. If God has any aim in his redemptive purposes, it is to call his people to worship him. This is the chief end of man. Jonathan Cruz takes it a little further. He has a great, wonderful book, is What We Do in Worship. Man, wonderful books, but helped me a bunch over the last couple years. He says, the most important thing you can do every week, every week, no matter what your week looks like, will be to come to worship the church with the church on the Lord's Day. Whatever you do this week, the most important thing you can do this week, no matter what your week looks like, will be to come to worship with the church on the Lord's Day. Wonderful that we have guests in here this morning who are on vacation up here, and they, and they still found it as important to go with a body, even they're away from their own local body. We're, they, they said, it's time we need to come worship with the body this morning. Why? Because it's the most important thing you can do this week. It should be the most important thing you do this week. 
It's what, and we'll talk more about what that looks like here in just a few minutes. Now, listen, I know that sounds audacious. I know to the, um, and it may even sound a little bit heavy-handed to the modern mind, right? The sensibilities that we kind of, like, whoa, you're being a little legalistic with this, Pastor? And the answer is, no, I'm not. Because the Bible commands it. And what I've told you before is it's not legalism to follow God's commands. It's only legalism when we try to follow God to earn our salvation. But legalism isn't following God's command. God says, obey me. And one of the places he calls us to obey him is in worship. In fact, it's the chief thing he calls us to obey him. It's, it's not that worship is to be ethereal, that you can just worship God anyway and anywhere you want to. That's not true either. Does God show up in other places? Sure he does. But it is how God has called us and historically called his church and his people, Israel, even back in Israel, say how to practically gather on the Lord's day and worship him. And we'll find out why he did that here in a minute. So I want to consider three things about worship this morning with you. The first one will be our longest one that we'll spend our time on, the theology of worship. Then we're going to look at, after we develop a theology of worship, we're going to look at the anatomy. Why do we do? We'll even go through our worship guide a little bit and show you. You may even wonder, like, why do we do that? Well, we're going to talk about that. And at the end, we're going to talk about how are you preparing for worship? How do I prepare for worship? And friends, I'm going to be honest with you. Even as your pastor who, who loves this, I was deeply convicted on some things that even I want to steer my family into thinking back more deeply about again. So let's talk about the theology of worship. Again, this will be the majority of our time, and then we'll hit those last two a little bit shorter. When you think about the theology of worship, you've got to think about three things about worship. First, that worship is creational. I said it a minute ago. Worship, it's in my statement, worship is ingrained in creation. That God himself created what he created with the end being that he would be worshipped. I mean, think about it. The six days ended with the seventh day of God resting. And why did God do that? Does God need a nap? Of course God doesn't need a nap. But God himself rested on that day as an invitation to all of creation, and particularly those that, the pinnacle of creation, mankind, and inviting them into rest and to revel in who he is as their creator, sovereign God. Amen. He's saying, time out. Have you seen what wonderful things are happening around you at this moment? That's why God ends these seven days, ends these, this, this, the creation order by, by the Sabbath. He's calling his people, he's calling his creation to worship him. If you want to put it more starkly, life simply is not life without the worship of God. It doesn't work any other way. And when the worship of God gets interrupted, as we all know has since the fall, life spirals out of control. And so we need to go back and think about what God has called us to as his people in worship. And it's not that it's just grounded in creation, but that there's a framework in creation that shows you how God wants to be worshipped. I mean, let's just think back to Genesis. I'm not going to go there. You, can, you probably know the story well. God creates the world in six days and then rests on the seventh. And then we get that second little glimpse in chapter 2 where he kind of almost takes a microscope and looks at the details of Adam and Eve, right? And in there, he's got this wonderful trifecta of how he's built the world. God's people, we say, living in God's place, God says, under his rule and blessing. 
Does that make sense? That's what you see in the garden. God places his people, forms them from the dust of the ground, and he puts them in the garden, Eden, and they are there to what? Live under his rule and blessing. Do this, you will live. Do this, and you will die. Eden, in that moment, isn't just a paradise. Eden is a sanctuary. Eden is a temple. And so long as they were in the temple with God, in his presence, they could live in assurance under his rule and blessing. And so God places his people, made in his image, this very good people who are called to subdue the earth and live as God's regents on the, in, the, in the world. And he places them in this, this temple, this sanctuary, to live within his presence so that they might bring him glory with every ounce of their being and they could then live under his rule and blessing as they did so and they would extend with them as they went out into the world and subdued it. This is at the very heart of the Bible. To go any further from Genesis 1 and 2 from this is to, is to really neglect the, the, almost the most basic theological framework of the entire Bible. God has a people. He is called to worship him in a, in, in a, in a context of a sanctuary, a temple, and there, and there they live under the, the good blessing of God. This theology of worship is vitally important, particularly because of what happens next in the story, Right? What happens next in the story? They fall, right? They fall to pray. They, they let the serpent come in and ask all these seductive questions. And it's wonderful how he does it too, right? Because he, he comes in, he asks these questions, and he doesn't come out right away and call God a liar, but that's exactly what he's doing. He's calling God a liar. And he hooks them and he hooks us with these same deceptive ideas. And now we have a problem because they've rejected their God. And we know what happens next. God sends them out of the garden. They're no longer in his presence and they're no longer living under his rule and blessing. Now, certainly God is still sovereign. He's still ruler of all things over all creation. And he demonstrates that from that time all the way until now until when Jesus returns. But from a, from a practical standpoint, mankind is now out from under God's practical blessing, under his practical uh, presence and, and living under his grace. And so when, 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 and that's because, what have they done? They've rejected worship. They've rejected trusting him. Since the fall, the world has been filled with aberrant worship because of this. Creating our own temples like in Babel. And means of worship, worshiping our fake gods and fake deities like the golden calf. This is what mankind does. Even God's people do from time to time, sadly. Romans 1, 18 through 25. You all know the passage well, but this is what it is. This whole passage is about the fact that mankind worships anything but God. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though he, they knew God, they did not glorify him, i.e. worship him as God, or show gratitude. Instead, they, 
their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were dark and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory, the worship of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man. In other words, they exchanged the worship of God for ourselves. This is what mankind's in. This is the situation we're in. Verse 24, therefore God delivered them over to their desires of their hearts to sexual morality and purity and, and so that their bodies would be degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the created instead of the creator. This has been the condition of mankind since the very beginning. This is what it, we have seen and, and, it's, and it's the cause of all the problems we have in the world because we continue to worship everything, anyone, anything but God. It's hard to read the Bible and not see that framework, isn't it? God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing and how God himself since that very, that very first days has been recreating that, been promising that one day he would do this. And we see this in Abraham and we see this in, in Moses and we see this in, in David and then finally we see it fully realized in Christ. That God himself will have a people for himself. They will be his temple until the one day he comes back with new heavens and new earth for a, a new and better temple. And we will worship him forever and ever and ever and ever. The temple takes on a lot of forms throughout the Bible because ultimately it'll find its ultimate realization in Christ in that throne room where we will worship him forever. Now, so because we have this, the, uh, this, this framework of, of, of worship that has been broken by sin, we have to recognize that there's a second part to this that's in our theology of worship. That worship is commissioned. You and I are commissioned to worship until Jesus returns. Like the one main thing that you can be assured of, that God can be assured of or should be assured of in his church is that his church will worship him. And that is like the main thing the church is called to do. Think about it just for a moment. Everything from the fall forward is seeking to recover the worship of God because that is what was destroyed in the garden by the disobedience of Adam and Eve. And so then when God then approaches Abraham, he's reestablishing their allegiance to the one true God. Amen. And it goes even more deeply in Moses, right? As they're out there on that plain and Moses goes up on the Mount Sinai and he, they, what are the people doing back in the plain? They're worshiping, but they're not worshiping God. They are making gods in their own image. And so Moses is up here and God's saying, do you see what your people are doing down there? And of course, God is ready to kind of disband this people and say, they're not going to be my people. I'm disband his promises. But Moses goes in and says, no, you've, you've made a promise. God, fulfill your promises. He says, if you don't fulfill your promises, we have utterly no hope. And so what does God do then? He gives them the law. And what is the law? Well, it's a recovery of the law that was broken in a garden. It's the recovery of how God's people are to relate to him. Think about what, the, what we see in the Ten Commandments. There are no other gods and no images but God. Don't worship any other God but me. Don't take God's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath and make it holy. Those first three are our relationship with God. The next five then are more interpersonal, how we worship God. And the first one is the vertical relationship with God, right? How we relate to God. The second is how we worship God and how you and I relate to one another. Like honor your mother and father, value others and the integrity and indignity of humanity by not murdering and not 
uh, engaging in adultery or theft or lying. And then those last two are even more. They get more personal. Don't covet. Why is that important? Because he's not just looking at the external, he's looking at the internal. He's saying, look at your hearts. Glorify me with your hearts. Abandon your idolatry. This is what God isn't doing. So if you want to look at this, the Bible narrative properly, you've got to see that worship's what drives the whole thing. When God gives them his law, he is reordering their worship because they can't do anything without it. Because otherwise they're going to fumble around here with golden calves down in the, in, in the plain. And that's what you and I will do too. When we don't have worship in our lives, proper worship in our lives, and how we don't do that properly here in this fellowship, guess what we do? We fumble around doing our own thing, and it doesn't bring glory to God. And I, it, you know what? I'm just going to hold off on that. I had a thought there, but I'm going to be nice. And ultimately, all of this is carried over in the New Testament, isn't it? That Jesus picks up on this whole idea of recovering worship, in the Sermon on the Mount, that's what he's telling us. He's calling his people, you're my people, and if you live like this, you, you will bring glory to God. If, if, if you, in the, in the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the second is like it, to love others as yourself. Amen. When they ask him what the greatest commandment is, it's all about worship. And then he finally ends it. As he's ascending into heaven, that great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you, and lo, I will be with you always. What is all of this? It's a resetting of worship. When worship is neglected in the church, so will the mission of the church be neglected. You want to know why the church isn't more effective in the world we're in right now today? We've neglected worship. We try to make worship in our own image. And I do mean that to be a bit of a snarky comment to other churches at times. And I'm not trying to be mean. We've got to get back to the heart of worship. God has commanded us. I love what um, Daryl Hart, who's a professor at Hillsdale, uh, wrote a great book on, on, on worship. And he talks about this great commission that we oftentimes think is about evangelism. And it's not about evangelism, at least not first and foremost. The Great Commission is about making disciples. That's the main verb there. Not the go, not the baptize, not the teach. It's, all of that is making disciples. Amen. Now why is that important for us to remember? Because it's who's given the, who is given who the instructions to go. Who is giving who the instructions to baptize. Who is giving who the instructions to go teach. It's Jesus giving his church the instructions to do these things. And why are they doing these things? Because they worship the one true living God. You take worship out of the equation, they would never do these things. And you take the worship out of this room, you would never do those things yourself, would you not? This is what it's all about. So if we have worship rooted in creation, and, we have root, uh, and because that has been broken, and then we are now called to, to, to be commissioned to worship until Jesus comes again, it's because ultimately one day worship will be consummated. Right? One day, we're going to be with Jesus forever and ever and ever, worshiping him, and there won't be any sin anymore. There won't be any brokenness. It's exactly what, uh, it's exactly what uh, was said this morning from the, from the stage here, you know, that, that we are reminded that one day we will not be broken by sin. We will live sinlessly and live holy with the one God, true God, forever and ever and ever, all because of the work of the Son, Jesus. 
Thank you, Casey, for reminding us of that this morning. Thank you for connecting those dots between our songs and our worship because it helps us remember where we're, what we're trying to do here on Sunday mornings. Because that's where we're heading. If, if worship is where it all began in creation, guess where it ends? Worship. In the eternal throne room of God, worshiping our King Jesus forever and ever and ever as he ushers in the new heavens and new earth. And that will be the substance, that will be the very lifeblood of the new creation. Isn't that beautiful? It's so amazing. Look at what Revelation 4 says. Verses 10 and 11. The 24 elders fall down before the one seated at the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, O Lord our God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. He carries on in chapter 5, verse 11 through 14, by saying this is where, why does he, why do they do these things? Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under earth and on, on the sea and everything in them say, blessing and honor, glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. If you don't do worship now, you probably won't really enjoy it as much then. Jonathan Cruz says it this way in his book. What we do on Sunday and the Sabbath is practice for what we will do on that great day in glory. So let's practice well. Let's practice well. Let's, let's set aside the tomfoolery of this world that tries to improve upon things. And let's just get back to the heart of it, shall we? Getting worship right is at the very essence of God's redemptive purposes and his works. Never, ever forget that. So if that's our theology of worship, that worship is creational, worship is commissioned, and worship is consummated, then how do we worship? What would it look like for us to genuinely worship God properly, rightly, in a way that is, brings him glory and not us glory? Well, that's why I want to take a minute to think about. Are we free to do whatever we want to do here on Sunday mornings? No, we're not. God has given instructions to his people on how he is to be worshipped, and he was very direct about it. And when people didn't worship him the way they were supposed to, especially in the Old Testament, what, would, what did he do? He judged them. And so his people must take the priority of worship seriously. Now, we don't always get it right, and God is gracious, and under Christ, there's a lot of room for grace. And so I don't want to pretend to say that everything we're going to, what I'm going to say about what we do here is the only way other churches can do it. There's some variety we can, we can certainly bring into this, but, but I can tell you at least why, based on what I just said to you in the theology of worship, why we take worship so seriously and why we put all this information in this bulletin for you on Sunday mornings. Because it does matter how we worship God. When we read the Psalms, and when we read songs that we read songs of praise to God for who He is and what He has done. So when you do Christian worship, i.e., the Sabbath on the Lord's Day, 
we are doing what the psalmist did is when they would go to the Lord and they would cry out to the Lord, the one thing they always ended with, because you are great God, because you save God, because you are conqueror God, because you are warrior God. What they are doing when they sing these songs these, of the Psalms, they are retelling the drama of redemption. And so that's what we try to do here in our worship on Sunday mornings, is retell the drama of redemption. I mean, think about what you participate in here this morning. We do a, what we call an invitation, or at the very beginning, a call to worship. In that call of worship, we are saying, like the psalmist says in Psalm 95, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are his people of his pasture, sheep under his care. And today, if we hear his voice, he will hear you. When we call ourselves into worship, we are simply saying God has invited us into worship. We are not inviting ourselves to anything. God himself is God, and because God is God, and he has invited us into his presence, we are now come into this place with that kind of holy mindset. That's why we say, the, like we did this morning, the, 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 we do the little um, responsive reading at the very beginning of usually of a psalm. The, Lord is the, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, and those who live in it were founded on the seas and established on the rivers. Well, what are we doing? We're, we're saying this is all God's. This whole world's God's. This church is God's. My life is God's. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in that holy place? Those who come to the Lord, what? With clean hands, with penitent hearts and pure hearts, who lift up their souls to, do not lift their souls up to what is false, but swear, and nor swear deceitfully. Like this is what we're doing. We are, we are calling ourselves out of our worldly lethargy of all the passions and things that consume our hearts and minds every week. And we're saying, nope, this is an invitation to come into the presence of God. And it's not because I'm worthy of it. It's because God has called me into it. Amen. That's why we call ourselves into worship. And then shortly after that, we usually sing a song. And our song like this morning was, um, uh, was uh, O God of Our Salvation. It's a song about God's Trinitarian character. And then after that, what happens? We have someone read a Psalter reading from the stage. One of our worship team usually does that. And then we enter into a time of confession. It's, it's here that God not only invites us into worship, but he invites us to look at ourselves honestly. He reveals our condition. Psalm 51, 1 through 6. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash out, wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. When we sing that second song, God is be merciful to me, we were essentially singing Psalm 51 and Psalm 106. Because we are reminding ourselves our condition is dire and we can't fix it. Only God can. And then we follow that up in our worship service to a time of pardon. Where we remind ourselves, through, usually through song or maybe sometimes a short reading, that God pardons sinners through his son. We sing glorious day. The Jesus who would go to the cross for us. Pay for our sins. And not only pay for our sins, but he would rescue us from, from death into new life. And one day he's going to return. He pardons sinners. Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his love own love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will, he, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we will also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have been received, we have received this reconciliation. It's a drum of redemption. God calls, just like he did Abraham, just like he did Adam, just like he did David, just like he did Moses. He says, you're my people. Worship me. You're sinners and you need help. But I provide pardon in my son. It's when we set this up, guess what happens? Doesn't that make it, doesn't it set us up to be able to receive God's commands, receive God's promises from his word? And it's there that we go to the next step in the service, right? That God commands and comforts his people through the preached word. We normally preach through books of the Bible. We've been in this series, it's more topical right now and doctrinal. But it's important for us to remember that's what God does. He commands and comforts his people through the preached word. Psalm 85, I will listen to what God will say. Surely the Lord will declare peace to his people, his faithful ones, and not let them go back to foolish ways. What's he saying? I need to listen to God's word now. I've been pardoned. And I get the privilege to come in and hear God's promises afresh and anew because the spirit lives within me and I can live a new life. When you hear God's word preached on Sunday mornings, that's what you are invited to hear because God has opened your eyes through his spirit. Or John 6, 68, Simon Peter answered, as we said earlier, Lord, to whom will we go? We have the word, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else can you go? Where else can I go? I go back to his word. And then we've end the service, or we finish the service out after, after preaching, as we will here in a moment, with the supper every week. We do the supper every week here. Not because it saves you, but it just reminds us of that covenant renewal we have with God. For I received from the Lord what I have also passed on to you, Paul says, on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper. He said, the, supper, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And as for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What's he doing there? Remember what we said about the Lord's Supper a couple weeks ago in the marks of the church. Baptism is the new sign of God's redemption of what he has passed on to us. And the Lord's Supper is the new seal. As we participate in this supper, we are, we are participating in this seal that God has given his church so that you we are reminded that we are his covenant people. See how it's all pulling together now? This is how it's designed. Our worship matters. And then at the end, we always send and we bless. So Jordan will come up here after this and typically in a few minutes, and he will lead us through our sending verse. He'll lead us through the doxology, which we do. Some churches do it on the beginning. We do it at the end. And then I will then proclaim a blessing over you, reminding you, of God's promises to you. This one sending verse we use here often is uh, 
Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And one of the ways that we bless is, comes from 1 Thessalonians 5. May the God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole and put you together, spirit, body, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our Master Lord, and Lord Jesus Christ. The one who has called you is completely dependable, and if he said it, he will do it. What are we doing in that moment? We're reminding ourselves that we leave here commissioned, witnesses. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. The world's going to be resistant to that message. We know this. But God will bless you all the way through it. So maybe you've never thought about why we do what we do here. Hopefully this will be a help to you. With a proper worship, theology of worship, and a proper understanding of the anatomy of worship, let's just spend just a couple minutes, and this will be brief. How do we prepare for worship? And these are just really practical things. One, start Saturday. Be intentional before the Sabbath in order to honor God on the Sabbath. Make decisions for your family that this is going to be prized on Sunday. There are a lot of things that we want to do, a lot of things that I will do this afternoon. We'll have a pretty busy afternoon, but we will prize this this morning. Number two, see not to be rushed on Sunday morning. It seems to me that Satan does this to us. He's done it to me many times. That the time that me and Amanda are going to probably get a little cross with one another is going to be on a Sunday morning, it feels like. Because we get rushed and we all both have expectations about what we're supposed to be there. And, but, but, but seek not to be rushed. Maybe prepare and lay out the breakfast the night before if you can. That's an idea. Try not to consume something else before you consume Jesus that morning. You know, eat your breakfast prayerfully mill about the house, get in your car, come down here and be ready to receive Jesus. Three, don't allow other distractions for you and your family before you come to worship. I've said today, I'm saying before, cultivate a free heart. Know that Satan will want to distract you on this morning of all mornings with the fleeting cares of this world. He will do it. He does it all the time. Five, uh, six, I'm sorry, five. Engage in building your brothers and sisters up in the Lord when you come. Try not to go right back into the busyness of the week and like, come in here and be ready to open the word, pray for them, listen to them, enjoy a cup of coffee with them. Certainly as we get into Bible studies next week, we're excited about that. Try to avoid calling attention to anything but that would distract you or the brethren from seeing Jesus that morning. It's one of the things that we are, here in a few weeks, we're going to, me and Kirk are going to have the whole worship team, we're going to feed them dinner, yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit about our vision for worship here and why we do what we do. And the reason we're going to do this is because we want everyone to know that we're not here and no one stands on this stage and no one speaks from this stage and no one prays from this stage to, to draw attention to themselves. They come to this stage to get behind you and push you to worship. That's what our job is. So we avoid anything that might distract the brethren from seeing Jesus on the morning. We try to linger. Take a little bit of time after church. Come early. 
stay late, grab lunch, dinner, dessert, later in the day, whatever it may be, do it. Find time to do it. Except for today, because we're doing a Congolese wedding after the day, so just kind of let you guys know that. Um, and I'm officiating it, so I love you, but you'll have to leave quickly. <laughs> but normally, we would say linger. Take that extra time. Take those few extra minutes. If you can't, go grab some lunch with someone. Invite someone over to your house. Sit in the backyard. Pull out the old camping chairs. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if you've been to the grocery store or not. Go do it. Get right with God and get right with believers. Lastly, if there's something between you and God, let the worship draw you out into humble glorious, joyful repentance. And there's something between you and a brother and sister that's been lingering or has been recent, like go to Christ or go to that brother and sister, go to them and show charity to them and, and ask God to heal. See, the next two weeks we're going to be talking about the edification of the church and the mission of the church. But dare I say that we can't get to that if we don't get this. Amen? We can't get to that if we don't get this right. Our worship and our people's serious attention to worship will impact how we care for one another and it will impact how we witness to the world. Father God, this morning as we finish up and we prepare for the Lord's table, may this message stir us, challenge us, convict us, draw us into a holy pursuit of the things that matter to you. You are not concerned with forms. You're not concerned with any of these things, but you have instituted forms for our good so that we might have, have our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. God, as we do this, as we saw in Hebrews 10, let us come and not neglect this and be your holy people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.